Let's start the sermon by um, talking about a cheery subject, uh, pornography. It's a good way to start a Sunday, right? Um, who doesn't love talking about porn on a Sunday morning? Well, it's fitting because we're talking about how we act like consumers when it comes to humans, when it comes to human beings. And we're also, we've come, last week we talked about how we were swimming in a sea of consumerism and we're all awash with the idea that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, uh, motivated by what will get me whatever I want to get. And porn is a perfect topic because people are the object. Porn is big business. Think of all the leading tech companies and probably the people in your head who make the most money. All of them combined do not make as much as the pornography industry. They make more than anything. The average age of the first viewing is about 11, though those numbers are a bit older, so it's probably younger than that. Um, Two-thirds of uh, HR professionals have found porn on employees' work computers. I mean, that's just dumb. Like, it's there at work. Uh, what are some other fun stats to bring up? 42% of Christian men in the UK say they are addicted to pornography. And 30% of church leaders access porn at least monthly. How about this? Uh, this is a, a crappy graph. But the, um, this biggest little... Oh, I tried to be... Uh, there we go, that little biggest section there. These are the total amount of websites on the internet. That makes up... That's pornography. 36% of the entire internet is dedicated to pornography sites. I mean, there are less people getting married over time, less people having sex even, and though we, maybe we think that's a good idea, I think we're, what we're all just doing is moving on with glazed eyes through the opiate of our screens. I mean, why get entangled with another human being if I can just be sexually gratified through a product? Why bother with a person? In pornography, what should be an expression of commitment and love to the other through sex ends up being what it can do for me. How can I be gratified first? It turns beauty into horror. It's not about helping other people. It's about what I can get out of it. That's consumerism applied to people. It makes a product out of a person. I mean, we invented the internet, and then what did we do with it? We put porn on it. Like, what an amazing thing the internet is. What do we use it for? 36% of it. No. All of us would say, probably, that pornography isn't good. But we all live pornified lives. We may not all be porn addicts, but we all have that kind of aspect within us. We all objectify each other, not just about sex. A pornified life is one that sees others merely as a way to make one's own life better. It's consumerism applied to human relationships. And for that to happen, to be able to use somebody in that way, we must dehumanize our fellow humans. Because when people are objects, then we can use them. When people are people, it's really hard to use them. So we must dehumanize them. And that's how we treat individuals, but it's also how we treat communities. Because if whatever the community is offering is immediately good for me, I'll come along. If not, then I won't. And through that logic, the church ceases to be a necessity and just becomes an option among many. That's how we get this weird thing of people being Christians, but also not being connected to churches, because we're all consumerists. It's easy to search out bloggers or podcasts and think that's your church, but that's just a consumable community. We might have our own tribes that we belong to, but we're really just tribes of individuals seeking to get our own gain out of what the community has to offer. And that's true for the church just as well as anywhere else, just as true as anywhere else. So this is the second in our brief kind of series on generosity. Last week we talked about our money and our stuff, material things. This week we're going to be focusing on relationships and we'll be asking, how can we be generous in our relationships? And obviously we have a problem. 
I mean, everyone wants to be generous, but also we're all consumers of everything. So we have these two things going on, these multiple personalities in our hearts tugging different ways. Now, some of us, even with the mention of the title of the sermon, might immediately feel guilty. I should be generous with others, but I'm not, and therefore I'm really bad, and then I'm just going to retreat into myself. Or some of us maybe should feel guilty because we don't recognize how much we truly treat others like objects. But all of us, all of our hearts are in the same boat. All of us love ourselves more than others, and this applied to our personal lives, to other people's lives, is damaging. Because if I was to ask you what kind of person you want to be, you probably wouldn't say, I want to be a person who can treat people like objects. I like to be more generous, or at least be seen as generous, but it's hard work. We love ourselves and we're happy with our fortified lives. And unless something happens, that's where we stay stuck. That's where we get to stay. But that place is right where Jesus works in that kind of stuck situation where we find ourselves. Because through Jesus' generosity, he frees us for our consumerism. He liberates us to be generous towards others in a way that we couldn't be otherwise. And this is what Paul is talking about in our text today in Philippians. He's speaking to the church at Philippi. Um, this is one of the churches in Macedonia. So we talked about that poorer, kind of ostracized and persecuted region called Macedonia last week. This is one of the churches there. So they're uh, materially not well off. They've been ostracized and kind of persecuted a bit. Uh, they're just um, not like the, a shining light of, of a kind of church that we would first think of. And, but Paul is teaching this, this poor church, and, and therefore us, because in the Bible, is teaching them and us about being generous in relationships with each other. And it boils down to a few, a few headings. To give up our pornified lives and live more generously, we must pursue unity, value others, and look to Jesus. We're going to look at those three things. Pursue unity, value others, and look to Jesus. So the first one here is to pursue unity. And this is what Paul talks about in his first few verses. Basically says, if you have any experience of God's grace, act like it. If, you've ever, if God has ever shown love to you, how does, that, how does your life respond? If you're encouraged by the fact that you are one with Christ himself, in verse one, united to Christ, if you have ever experienced comfort through the love of God, if you've, ever brought, if you've ever been brought into the love and the family of the Holy Spirit, if God has ever shown tenderness, has ever shown compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete. See, Paul isn't happy with individuals just knowing about God and kind of living their lives by themselves. Paul's joy is not complete for someone to just have a me and Jesus kind of situation. Paul's joy is complete by people loving each other well, by being in community with each other. He's not content with our individualism because we're saved from that. We're saved from being broken individuals. We're brought into a family. And without that reality, we not only withhold grace for ourselves, we make God less than he is because God himself exists in community. So this tells us it's possible and happens often, not only now, but then, for people to follow Jesus and still be stuck in relational consumerism. But the good news of the gospel is that we're saved from all that. We're saved from our consumerism and those pornified lives and saved to God's family, and that's what makes Paul's joy complete. Normally I would think, oh man, people became, someone became a Christian, that's it, job done, let's move on. But it's not, Paul, it, it, Paul wants something more. And so what does that look like right now in these first few verses? It looks like pursuing unity. Um, and pursuing unity itself uh, looks like being like-minded. He says um, in verse 2, they make my joy complete by being like-minded. So that me basically means being on the same page, having the same 
uh, thoughts, not in a weird kind of we all wear the same thing and have all the polit same political opinions kind of way, but um, with respect to God, with, with respect to others to be on the same page, to seek the same goal, large overall goal with the same mind. And what's our goal as a church? Earlier I said that our, our vision is to have is that 1% of people in Charlton would get to be connected to a church. Now, that might be different. I'm willing to guess it is, including my, than all of our functional goals, including myself. Because those, all those goals that we have for joining a church is all sorts of different things. I want to find friends. I want to find comfort. I want to do what's expected of me. Or I know I ought to do it, so I should do it. Or I feel guilty if I don't. I mean, I need a certain kind of experience about God. I mean, all of us have those things. We all have those things. It's not like those things are just going to go away. They will always be there. All of us have different goals for this church. It's not exactly in line with that more people might know Jesus, although hopefully that's part of it as well. But that means to seek unity together, we must give up those things that are maybe not important but inferior to the larger overall mission. We must give up those inferior goals so we can be on the same page with the same mission. That doesn't mean, therefore, don't care about finding friends. It just means if finding friends is your ultimate priority in no matter what you do, it's going to be self-serving. And otherwise, if we're all like, going to be doing that, then we're all chasing after uh, through what we want, all going off in a million kind of different directions. Not only are we not going to get what we want, we're going to be frustrated, and the mission won't even happen either. So nothing will happen. So we need to be like-minded. Paul also says uh, we should be, uh, they make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. So it's more than just about thinking. That like-minded is more kind of the thought world. Having the same love is about our hearts. We're all supposed to have the same love. It's important if it is just one particular love that we get it right, what that one love is. That same love is not a political or ethical agenda. It's not conservative evangelicalism. It's not planting a church. It's not community. It's not friendship. The same love we have is the love of Christ. Christ's love for us first, before anything. That allows us to be inclusive of people who believe and think and feel different things. That allows us to be diverse. That means people from any kind of background can find a place. Anyone can get in on this. And the love that we have for Jesus because he loved us first, that's our compass. That's what shapes our desires. It's that priority above everything else. And it's the same love. That means none of us are better off than others in this. We all have the same love. We're not at kind of different levels of this is like a, uh, a rock star Christian, this is like a, uh, well, I guess they passed the bar kind of Christian. We're all on the same boat. <coughs> what did you do to get God to love you? What do you do to keep him loving you? There is no in or out, who has it or who doesn't. We were all out. And because of Jesus' love for us, we get to be in. Another way to say this is harmonious. Being in one spirit of one mind, that's harmonious. In fact, the words, it's interesting, the words that Paul uses here to describe being of one soul and one mind is uh, the, these two Greek words meaning souls together, that we would be like souls together. And harmony, I think, is a good metaphor for this kind of unity because elsewhere uh, in Romans, Paul tells us with all of us together, whether individual voices, we ought to sing praises to God with one voice. So somehow there's a diversity in voices that ought to make one sound altogether. That means unity is something different than sameness. Sameness is like a faux kind of unity. It doesn't require anything. Everyone who you know, is into my sa the same kind of weird niche music than me, we're all the same. We can all hang out and talk about weird niche music together, like uh, free jazz in 1970s or something like that. 
And I would love to talk about that. But unity is diversity working together towards the same thing. It requires diversity. Unity without diversity is just sameness. It's not really unity. And in a harmony, you, you have literally two separate notes. It's not the same note. That would be unison. If you sing in harmony, they're two different notes. And if that person isn't singing, then that sound is different. It feels incomplete. But the more voices that are singing, the more harmonious voices, all on the same page, all singing the same song in the same key, you know, if you're not a great singer, roughly within where you ought to be, um, then it sounds really good. It sounds amazing to have like a harmony. I remember, I remember the first time I heard like five point, five part harmony. I was like, what in the world? Like my mind was blown. How in the world? All these people, then they're making one sound, but they're all different. It, it's crazy sounding. It's kind of magical. But a harmony that isn't right, or when someone tries to play a diva, or when someone's singing the wrong note, or even singing some song altogether, that sounds horrible. No one wants to listen to that. Like, that's not popular, that's not on the radio, but pentatonics is, or whatever. We all have different voices, and when a voice is missing, that changes us. It changes the harmony. When more voices are present, it adds to the richness. So that means people who are different than us are not an obstacle, they're an opportunity for us to grow in our unity, for us to grow in our richness. And it's not easier, but it's more beautiful. It's easier to sing in unison. It's harder to sing in harmony, but it is more beautiful. And there's no room for divas when we sing with harmony in mind, because singing with harmony in mind leaves space for others to enter. No one hogs the spotlight. There's always room for more. Unity is more important than me. And that's what generosity in our relationships can look like, leaving space for others and embracing the difference, but also on the same page, working for the same goal. So that's how Paul talks about in these, those first two verses there. And Paul is going to continue to give some commands. But for these next two verses, for verses three and four, he shifts the, the idea about. So the first two verses were more about pursuing unity. The second part is more about valuing others. It basically says, like, don't act out of an ambition that serves yourself. Don't live a life that keeps your image up and makes you look good. I mean, that's how a lot of people view the church, maybe rightfully so. Um, selfish ambition is getting what you want from others at their expense. And vain conceit is thinking of yourself higher than you ought. I mean, how do you know if you're selfishly ambitious or vainly conceited? Because no one says, yeah, I'm all right, but I'm a little bit selfishly ambitious. Or I'm a little bit vainly conceited. We, don't, we all think we're fine. We all think we're perfectly humble, which is ironic. Well, when, you, uh, when people get in the way of your plans, whatever they might be, time or money or whatever it might be, how do you react? Are you the sun that everyone around should be orbiting? When you do something good, do you let everyone else know about it? When you're successful in something, are you the hero in how you talk about it? Oh, I was clever enough to sort this out, or I really love people well because of this, or let me tell you a story of where I was like really humble. I mean, that's like, that's what we do, right? We kind of signal our virtue to each other in the church. But rather, in our humility, in true humility, we're supposed to value others above ourselves. Now, there is an assumed humility here I mean, it, um, that Paul's talking about. In order to value others above ourselves, we, we have to be humble first. And what does it look like to value others first? What well, looks like not looking out for our own interests, but looking out the interests of others. Forgo your sense of self-preservation first, which is hard. We're like, biologically, through evolution, wired to do that. But we're called not to live that way and act so others may thrive. Being generous in our relationships means giving. It means when we don't want to, it means to give when we don't want to do it for ourselves. By default, we treat relationships 
as any other consumer good. If they get me something, I'll hang out with them. What will they do for me? What will this group do for me? How vain. We choose to first hang out with people who will get us what we want, who will further our careers or skills in life, or who it's easy and comfortable to hang out with. And, and I get it, that's great, and that's probably the majority of our relationships. It's not that we shouldn't have those relationships, but if those are the only kind of relationships that we have, we aren't living the way that Jesus taught. For those who follow Jesus, we're called to live differently. We're called to be generous. Now, if you don't have any relationships like that, that's maybe not the first place to start, is one where you're gonna be giving but it's a place where we want to end up. Relationships then get transformed for something for me first, to serving someone else. Not in a dehumanizing way, like this is my project, this is my ministry that I'm gonna do for this person, but in a genuine love for another human being made in God's image, who's just as broken as we are. So that means people present opportunities to show the love of Jesus, to value them above ourselves, to look after their interests, to grow together in unity. I mean, do we even know where these opportunities are? We might know each other kind of well and might hang out with each other, but do we know where the opportunities are where we can serve each other in a way that we have to sacrifice for? Where are the opportunities in our friends and our neighbors who don't know Jesus yet? And if you know those opportunities, you kind of put it in the back of your head. Like, oh, that's just going to be a pain. I know that's a great way to serve them. I just don't want to do it. But since we don't think highly of ourselves because we are humble, that frees us to be friends with people or with all sorts of different kinds of people if we're truly humble. And sometimes not even friends. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be best friends with everybody or even friends with everybody. Being a good neighbor, being a servant doesn't automatically be friends, but it, it does mean serving them. It also means when we get treated like servants, we don't get bent out of shape because that's what we are, we're servants, the lowest on the totem pole. Growing up, um, I remember that every beer advertisement was the same. This is like, I don't, maybe they still are, but I hardly ever see commercials on television anymore. Um, not because I don't watch TV, I'm addicted to TV, it's because we watch uh, Netflix instead. Um, but this was basically every beer advert. There was a guy alone, sad, at the bar. He has nothing, no friends, completely helpless, drinking his cares away. But then he drinks this beer, and out of nowhere a party starts up and there's all sorts of streamers, and the lights get brighter. There are friends. Bikini-clad women appear out of nowhere. They're instantly in love with him. The guy is very happy. That's basically every single beer commercial that has ever existed. And it's the same story over and over and over again. Now, it's not like beer commercials are dumb. They're using what works. And as dumb as that is, it works for us. Life before beer, lonely, sad, depressed, no half-naked women. Life after beer, ooh, happy, party, friends, plenty women, not a lot of clothes. This is great. The woman who was a person, wasn't even the product. She was just a benefit to the product. The woman wasn't even good enough to be the product herself. She was just an add-on. Now this formula works. Beer companies spend loads on advertising and this will always be the narrative and all sorts of different companies use it, probably from toothpaste to cars to whatever. Now this sounds a bit extreme, but we do the same kind of thing with our communities. We love the idea of community, but only insofar as we get something out of it, insofar as that party starts up or whatever it is we want. Now, if you go to a knitting group and you don't do knitting, okay, that's one thing. If you go to a book group and don't talk about books, okay, I get it, don't, you know, go to a book group for books. But if we treat every community like that, like our neighborhood, if we treat our neighborhood like that, if we treat our church like that, we miss out. We become consumers of things that we ought to be giving ourselves to. The church, it should be a family, can easily devolve to a tribe of individuals. 
I mean, how many people are like, oh, I'm so happy to be part of my family because I get everything I want from them? I hope you have a family like that. Not very many people I do, uh, that I know do. Oftentimes, it's us giving ourselves to a family. And when we're all together, though, doing this thing, if everyone is participating in this together, putting others' interests first, not as an opportunity to be, uh, to be consumers, but to be generous, I mean, that's, that's a bit different. Right? I need the church to feed me in this way, or I need to get this out of it. You know, if that's your first stop, you're, get, you're always going to be discontent, and no church will ever match up. And that's how advertising works. Advertising preys upon those who are discontent. It tells you if you buy this thing, you'll be content. We, not, we do that with all sorts of things that don't include money. So if the family of God is just another option among all the other options, and you don't feel like it's delivering what you want, then of course you're going to go somewhere else. You'll become a consumer of something else. And when that lets you down, you move on and you move on. And it's just a cycle that never ends. But our consumerism puts us in the wrong place. Instead of seeing the church as a product or a benefit, it's fertile ground for us to grow in our generosity towards others. When we wake up in the morning, we're thinking about ourselves. When we eat breakfast, we're thinking about ourselves. On our commute, ourselves. All those times, we, all those hours we spend reading our Bibles, as we all do all the time, we're thinking about ourselves. During work, the commute home, our families, when we pray, we're constantly thinking about ourselves. We're so engrossed in, uh, are, are we so engrossed in others' lives and in focusing on them and giving ourselves to them that we rarely have time to think of ourselves? Generally, that's not our situation. The church is a glorious disruption to the consumerism we, we would just be stuck in otherwise. We need it. And the church needs to be needy because the church is the resistance, is the rebellion as we live out our generosity. Now, just because we need it does not make it enjoyable. Church isn't, one, the first reason to join church isn't because it's fun, though I hope it is, there are aspects of that. It's not the first reason. I mean, going to a gym is not an enjoyable experience unless you're some kind of weirdo. And that comes from a guy who used to be a trainer. But we know it's good for us, so we do it. We know we want to be healthy, so we do it. I mean, similar to last week, there are kind of three main takeaways how we can be generous um, people in our relationships. So how can we pursue unity and value others? Last week we talked about sacrifice, skill, and time, and I think the same thing applies here to relationships. So the first, if we're using that, that gym metaphor, it's a sacrifice. The gym is a sacrifice. You could sleep in, um, but you want to get healthy. People who are different in personality and class in ethnicity, they don't always get the same kind of inside jokes. It's sometimes it's a bit more work to get to a good relationship or even a good conversation. That's a sacrifice. I mean, that's coming from an American. I know all you British people are like talking to Greg is just like, you know, getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer because he's American. He's just on all the time. It's a sacrifice to be in a relationship with me because I don't immediately get all the inside jokes about what it was like growing up as a kid in England. That was totally different. But I'm hoping it's a worthy one, not because of me. Maybe you know, for, for Christina, it's probably more of a benefit. I'm hoping it's a worthy, worthy one because otherwise we all end up the same and we all end up boring. It's a sacrifice of ease. It's a sacrifice of comfort. There are people we can be friends with that are just easy to be with. It's comfortable and that's great. And we should have those relationships. But if all your relationships are merely comfortable, it might mean you need to grow in generosity towards others. I mean, Christina and I, we have very different tastes in music. I like anything that's dark and weird. Christina likes anything that's happy and bright. Um, same thing when it comes to films. If everyone dies at the end and it's sad, I'm all about it. <laughs> Christina will avoid it like a plague. It's a sacrifice for her to sit and watch some of these horrible movies with me. But sometimes she does. 
She's not here, so I can talk about her. I mean, sometimes it might mean a sacrifice of money for others. Sometimes it might mean a sacrifice of time, which is more expensive than money. The church is supposed to be like a family. So if I found out that my brother, my literal, like, physical blood brother, needed a lift somewhere, or he needed help with something, or was kind of lonely, what kind of brother would I be if I didn't like, involve myself with him, if I ignored it? We can't ignore each other. And equally, if my brother was going through something and didn't tell me, I would be offended. Like, why didn't you tell me you were going through this? You've been living for this like, for years or whatever. That's not good. I think most of us probably generally fall into that category, that we want to be seen as good on the outside, and so we don't share kind of the horrible things that are going on inside of us or where we need people in our lives. I'm not saying we need to share with the entire church everything that's going on all the time, but surely there has to be like one or two or three people in your life where you can be needy with, because we're needy. We're needy humans. If we reject our neediness, we're depriving others from living out their generosity towards us. So not only do we not get what we need, that other person can't be generous. Often when I hear of a need or a big decision someone has had to make, they didn't tell anyone. They say, oh, I didn't want to burden anybody. The church should be full of people burdening each other. That's a good thing. I want my loved ones to feel burdened by me. I don't want to have to carry all that by myself. I'm not meant to. We have to rebel against the idea that we have it all together. Having it all together, or at least putting forth that idea, proves that we're selfishly ambitious and vainly conceited. We need to rebel against that because it's life-sucking. It's the aroma of death. So that's sacrifice. Sometimes a sacrifice really to our ego, and that might be the hardest thing. The next one is, is skill. Again, think of a gym. You generally aren't a superstar when you start working out in a gym. You have to learn how to do the exercises. Your weight might feel like insanely heavy, and then you look over the weight stack, and it's like the small, smallest, tiniest little plate that some like baby's like chucking around or something like that. Passerby is looking at you struggling, like, oh man, you must be have a lot of weight. Oh no, okay. <laughs> They're just weak. But that's okay, because we're all weak. That's why we go to the gym. The gym is for weak people. Jesus isn't for people who are perfectly generous. He's for people who need to grow in generosity. That's what being a disciple is. So what's the next small worst baby little weight to add on your life? What's the smallest tiny increment you can move forward with? If you put a ton of weight on, and this comes from my years of experience as a personal trainer, people go into the gym, all right, I'm gonna work out, I'm gonna be buff. They come one day, they try and put all this weight on, they're incredibly sore and even injured the next day, they never come back again. That's not what we want the church to be. We want the church to small step with small increments as we grow together in, in, in faith. So don't put a ton of weight on. You'll hurt yourself. You won't ever come back. Just take a few small steps. The last one is time. Uh, be okay with this being a process. It takes time. We love being perfect in all things, getting the perfect <laughs> life without showing the sweat behind the scenes. We're selfishly ambitious and we're vainly conceited. Be okay with taking time. We aren't looking for an overnight change. We're all on this lifelong journey towards generosity. Now, that, those are kind of general ideas. Let me just take it um, a few examples, a few specific examples. A family with kids has less expendable time than those who are not married or those without kids. That means in order to be generous in our relationships, people without kids might have to sacrifice some time since they have a little bit more of it to be family to those who do have children. You'll probably go to their house more than them going to yours. We are completely guilty of this and completely unabashedly, unashamedly guilty. People, why don't you come to ours? Because it's a big pain to go to somebody else's house. You know, it's a sacrifice to not have people at your house, to have to go to someone else's all the time. And families with kids, we will have to sacrifice time, maybe, but definitely comfort, 
So sometimes maybe we should go to those other, per other people's houses. Or I know at the end of the day, I just want to reset my brain and just kind of glaze over and watch Netflix or do, read a book or whatever the thing is. But it's worth that sacrifice of comfort, that sacrifice of time to hang out with people. And especially as an introvert for myself, inviting people over to your house without there really being anything special going on, just to hang out. I'm a big fan of crappy dinner parties. Don't clean your house, don't have like something amazing, just have food and people together. A consumerist world tells you it's all about the food, but a generous world tells you it's all about the people. Food is like, is nice, but it's not just about the food, it's about the people. Another thing, we're a younger church. Um, that means people who are older, I'm not saying who, I'm not telling you what category I fit myself into should be overwhelmed at these young people's interests in their lives. The people who, are, who identify as older should be like, oh my gosh, there's all these people who are younger than me wanting to be a part of my life. People who are younger, there are more younger people of us than older, so the younger people should be going out of their way to connect with people who are different in age for them. I think that's generosity in action. And that's not our normal inclination. Normally we want to hang out with people who are like us because we love sameness. But unity is better than sameness. Now those are just some examples within our small church. Uh, and uh, uh, this is, is Paul's context here, is the church. But obviously we're called to be generous to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And that's why we wanna be part of Reach Out to the Community. That's why we, why we wanna be a part of Longford Center. It puts us in contact with people we wouldn't normally otherwise and gives us opportunities to be generous, not just with money, but with, with our lives. I mean, how does relational generosity look like in your workplace? Or how can you sacrifice for others and not be recognized? How can we look out for the good of others, even in situations where you're not sure they're looking out for the good for you? Because our generosity isn't dependent on them. Now, we're also not called to be stupid either. So just like with money, we're supposed to be wise how we handle it. So don't be dumb and be completely generous and give everything away and become destitute. Um, be, we're supposed to be steward our gifts with wisdom, but we're also supposed to be generous with it. Now, if I ended the sermon there, I could. I'd be like, oh yeah, all right, let's do it. Or you might be like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. How could I possibly do this? And of course, you have that strange voice. I don't know why I made that voice for you. Um, but even if you were on, on the high, you'd be like, all right, yeah, and, and maybe you might feel good for a day or maybe a week, but eventually it would go away. Because Paul doesn't end there. And I think it's important that we get to this kind of beautiful section that Paul has in verses 5 through 11. Because we have a problem with consumerism and relationships, and it's not just how to do it better. We've outlined all the different ways we can be generous, but none of it works by itself. Because the reason we can be generous is because Jesus has first been generous to us. Who is going to help us? Because we have a massive consumerist problem. Without Jesus, we're doomed to be stuck in our pornified lives. So the last thing we have here in this section is to look to Jesus. In verses 5 through, 11, 5 through 11, Paul tells us to look to Jesus. And these are some of the verses are some of the most beautiful in the New Testament. So what's Jesus like if we're supposed to look to him? Well, he has everything because he's God in verse 6. He's God in himself. He has everything. He's God after all. But he didn't use that for his own advantage because he's not selfishly ambitious. He's not vainly conceited. Instead, the one person who actually has the legitimacy to make himself something, the only one who has ever lived to have, have that legitimacy, makes himself nothing. Sacrificed his nature, sacrificed his makeup, became a man. Eternally, he is a human being. 
He humbled himself to die a very non-religious, though it feels religious now because of the years that passed, it's a very non-religious, criminal, and shameful way to die. And what did God do with that? Verses 9 through 11 says that God exalted him above everything else. There is no name higher than his. There's no name more revered in all the universe than his. And don't let a few humans who don't recognize this reality fool you. Jesus is above all. And this is great news because we need Jesus to be above us. Without that, what help can we look to in order to be freed from our pornified lives? If we can't be rescued ourselves, how can we even begin to believe we can be generous people? And not just here and there, but have generosity be an ongoing theme in our life, an ongoing trajectory. In these verses, Paul teaches that when we look to Jesus, we see two things. These are model because nobody lived a more generous life than Jesus. No one gave up and sacrificed more than Jesus did. But you think it was easy to hang out with his disciples? Do you think it's easy for Jesus to hang out with you? You, there, you might be thinking, when I was talking about people who it's harder to hang out with, you're like, oh yeah, that person's really difficult. Nothing on Jesus and you. You are the most difficult person Jesus could ever hang out with. He doesn't withhold himself from you because of that, though. He pursues you. And Jesus, despite your difficulties, despite your unbelief, he keeps giving until it hurt, until he gave up his life, his time, his emotions, everything, and it never runs out. But he's more than just our model. He's more than just how we ought to live. He's how we get to live that way. He's what we look to. It's also how we get there. He's how to be freed from consumerism and live generous lives, because we've been given... Christ himself. We are the recipients of Jesus' radical generosity. People who didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, didn't work for it, can't hold it for themselves, prone to wandering, prone to not believing the goodness of this gift, and Jesus doesn't stop. He keeps giving. He keeps giving. He never, ever, ever stops. So the trick to generosity isn't first trying to be more generous. The first thing to do is to surrender to Jesus' generosity, to surrender to Christ's generosity towards us, our brains and our hearts are backwards because we find this hard to understand, but in God's kingdom, in God's world, the way down is the way up. Jesus sacrificed and is exalted. We surrender and we receive. Everything else in this world tells you to do the opposite. Claw to the top, do everything you can, even take advantage of other people every now and then, but not too much where it makes you feel super bad, just enough to get you what you want. Everyone else is your enemy so you can get what you want. And when you get there, and it, say it even does work, and often it doesn't, but even if it does work, that's not even the kind of life we want to live. The sacrifice of Jesus frees us to have a new, ongoing, close relationship with our Creator. He sacrifices comfort so that we can find our comfort in Him, and that frees us to be generous in relationships and sacrifice our own comfort. He sacrificed His ambition so that we can find our ambition purified in Him. Not that we should be ambitionless, because ambition could be good, but so we can have a new purified ambition. So now we don't use others to get what we want. We already have been given everything. And we live out of that, and we can be generous towards others. Now, just briefly, before we finish here, did you see in the verses 10 through 11 something that basically isn't true? You see how the, name, the mention of Jesus' name, every knee bows, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All who have tongues to speak, what they're speaking is that Jesus is Lord. We aren't Lord, our significant others aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord and the Father gets the glory. Now we might briefly look around the world and see like, this isn't true, Paul. Like, what are you talking about? This is not true, we don't experience this. People, are people clamoring to get in here? No, like we're small and we're gonna stay small for a while because it's just how it is. It takes a long time, it's hard work. 
So how can Paul say this in verses 10 and 11? Well, this is what Paul's looking forward to, that when Jesus returns, and when heaven comes out of the sky to finally be on earth again as it was in the beginning, in that day and from that time forth, every knee will bow. Jesus' lordship will be acknowledged, whether people receive it or not. Jesus' new world that Paul's talking about here is the culmination of his generosity towards us. It's where all things will be finally made new. And now he's in charge of the world as it is, broken but being made new, all those broken parts that aren't bending to his lordship. He's making it new. He's in the process of bringing this new world. And as we live out our relationships as generous people, we get to join Jesus in that newness, in making this world new. We get to join him in that mission. And so as we take this bread and this wine, we see it first as Jesus' generosity towards us, Jesus feeding us, Jesus sustaining us. It's a symbol of spiritually what's going on. And as we eat and drink, let's think of others who we want to experience the same kind of generosity that haven't yet. Let's pray for them. Let's also think of the new world that we're now, even as we meet together in this bar, strange as it is, we're now getting to join in this mission of making all things new. And where one day we will experience it completely. It won't just be a taste. It won't just be a loaf. It'll be a feast. And this bread and wine is for those who follow Jesus and have already surrendered to his generosity. That's for you. No matter where you are with Redeemer, you're free to come up here. If you haven't yet experienced Jesus' generosity, though, this, is, this meal is not for you. But for those who have, and maybe this might be your first time, Jesus solved the brokenness in our relationship to God by being broken himself, being the bread that was broken so that we wouldn't have to be. And his blood that he poured out, he drank from the cup of wrath completely, drained it, no wrath left for those who are in him so that our cups might overflow with his generosity, that we would drink and never be in need and never be in want. He valued us above his own well-being on a scale that we can barely fathom. This transforms our hearts, so now instead of being so self-obsessed, so consumer-driven towards others, we can respond, even in, if, if it's just a small increment of a change now, we can respond in a generous way, value others above ourselves, and pursue unity with each other. Let me pray.